Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. All right, well, hey, we are in a series, and uh, we've been in this for the last couple of weeks, entitled Heart Attack, and we are talking about the enemies that try to attack our heart. And uh, you probably know this if you've been following Jesus for any length of time by now, but uh, while you are living here in the natural and going through the day-to-day, there is a spiritual battle that is taking place for your life, for your future, and for your heart. The enemy understands that the condition of your heart greatly affects the outcome of your destiny, and he knows if he can infiltrate your heart, he can decimate your future. And so we are given a number of warnings all throughout scripture about making sure that our heart is in the right condition. And the key verse we've been looking at over the last few weeks in this series is Proverbs chapter four, verse 23, which says, guard your heart above all else, because it in fact does determine the direction of your life. How many of you experienced that before? Some stuff's gotten into your heart and maybe you led you some places into some relationships, into some situations that you didn't desire, but it was all because you let some stuff in there that shouldn't have gotten in in the first place. And so the Bible tells us, hey, above all else, the most important thing, guard your heart because God has a preferable future for you. And the way we get there is ensuring that none of the enemies attack our heart and infiltrate that thing. And we can walk out what God has for us if we keep it guarded. And if you're gonna, the type to take notes, I want you to write this down because uh, I think it might help you in in the days to come. Attack, when it comes to your heart, is inevitable. Attack is inevitable, but invasion is preventable. Attack is inevitable, but invasion is preventable. Uh, As we prepared for this series, I I did a bunch of research um, on WebMD, which we all know is the source of all wisdom and truth. And uh, I discovered something probably that many of you know, and that is that heart disease is in fact the number one killer in the United States. More than cancer, more than car accidents, more than anything, heart disease kills a whole lot of people. In fact, I think last year it was 610,000 people died from heart disease. Now, that's a depressing, uh, depressing statistic, I can say it, hold on, depressing statistic, there it is, all by itself, thank you, thank you, I'll be here all day, um, depressing statistic all by itself, however, what's more depressing is the fact that doctors say 80% of those deaths could have been avoided. Almost half a million people died because they did not pay attention to the symptoms that ultimately led to their fatality. If they had just paid attention to the symptoms and made some changes in their life and some diet and some exercise and all those things, we could have kept half a million people alive in the United States, but they died unnecessarily because they ignored what was going on in their heart. And I think that that statistic, that fatality rate is probably all the more real in the body of Christ. People who get plucked out of the the body, people who stop coming to church and disassociate with their faith, all because some stuff got in their heart, some symptoms started to reveal themselves and we just didn't pay attention to it. And so over the last couple of weeks in this series, we've been having the necessary uncomfortable conversations about looking at some of the symptoms in our life to determine, are there some things in our heart that, that really don't belong there? Because I don't want your spiritual journey to end in fatality. I want you to live the kind of life that God has called you to live, the fulfilling life, a life of purpose, a life of destiny, a life of influence. And all of that has to do with making sure that our hearts are well guarded. So we've talked about in week one, how to cure a calloused heart. Uh, In week two, we talked about how to heal a hoarding heart. And then uh, week three, which most of you are not here for, thanks for that, by the way, um, we have my friend Christian Wong, just kidding, kind of. 
my friend Christian Wong come and preach about how uh, we, we, we heal a sick heart and how our hearts become sick when our hope is deferred. It was an incredible week. Go back and check that out on the podcast if you weren't here. But today we are going to continue our uncomfortable discussion as we talk about the subject of a prideful heart. Ooh, you feel that? Yeah, that's great. How to purge a prideful heart is where we're going to go today. Now, the second I said that word pride, a couple of things happened in a lot of people's brains. A number of people made this statement to themselves. Well, you know, I'm glad I'm at church today. Worship was good, but this message probably isn't for me. I don't deal with pride. I'm super duper hecka humble. Like, that's just who I am. So this is, this is probably for somebody else. And simultaneously, this thought popped up for many. Oh, I'm really glad so-and-so is sitting in here today <laughs> because they really need to hear this message. Or maybe they're not here and you're like, yo, I'm going to send the link to the podcast to this person. Be like, man, church was so good. You should check this out because they got an issue with pride. Sorry to tell you if that thought crossed your mind, <laughs> this message is probably more for you than you realize today. Because here's the interesting thing about pride. Um, pride is a bit of a blind spot for most of us. It's something we don't have the capacity to acknowledge ourselves. Many times you don't even realize you're dealing with pride until somebody else points it out in your life. It takes someone who loves you kind of revealing to you, hey, you kind of, you got an issue here. It's like, it's like food on your face or food in your teeth. You need someone else to tell you about it. You ever ha that ever happened to someone here before? You've been walking around with food all over your face and no one told you? Okay, just a couple of us. Well, I'll share my woes. Uh, about two months ago, it was our one-year church anniversary, and uh, it was the largest attended Sunday we've ever had in the history of our church. I think we had 603 people here. It was amazing. Parking lot was stacked, and people came early to church. It was a pastor's dream. And uh, I'm standing out on the front, and I'm like, I'm greeting people and high-fiving and hugging folks. And they're like, this is awesome. Look at all these new faces. This is amazing. And I'm talking to all my friends, the people that love me, my wife and some of my closest friends and people on our team. And, you know, I'm just out there doing my thing. And about 20 minutes after greeting hundreds of people walking in the door, I walk into the lobby and my friend Isaac Barch, sitting back there on the production table today, looks at me, he's like, hey, um, you got like a whole lot of food or like something like on your face right here. I'm like, wait, are you serious? He's like, yeah, dude, you need to go, need to, go to the bathroom and check that out. Sure enough, I walk in the bathroom. It's like a goiter on the side of my face. Like, really? I talked to all these people who love me and nobody said a word. It took Isaac being honest with me, like, hey, bro, you have something on your face that you need to fix. Thanks for that, Robin. Appreciate it, by the way. So here's the deal as we get into the word today. I am your Isaac Barch this morning. I'm going to be your friend. I love you enough to let you know if you've got some pride on your face or some pride in your heart because I don't want you walking around with that any longer. I want you to fulfill the high call of God for your life. And it starts with us embracing humility. So let's get into it today. How to purge a prideful heart. And uh, feel free to you know, talk back because it's going to be one of those subjects that's uncomfortable. And the more you preach me on, the more comfortable everybody in the room feels. It's going to be good. Jesus, we love you this morning. We thank you for your word. Thank you that it has the power to transform our lives. And I pray that we would have the humility to receive from you today. Our hearts are open. Uh, we're here today because we believe that your word and your presence can change us. We don't want to leave the same way we came. And so we ask by your grace, by your power, you would do a deep work in our hearts. You would show us how to embrace humility, how to live uh, the way that you've called us to live and uh, to walk out of this place completely different. And Father, we also thank you for um, the win on Friday night, the Warriors win on Friday night, two points. It's not a lot of points, but it's two points. 
Father, we know that you can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask, think, or imagine. And the season is not too far gone. You are able. You are the God of the impossible. And so we intercede for the warriors today. Come on. Yeah, let's just agree for this today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Whatever. Okay, you got to pray for your teams. The Niners, they're receiving prayer. That's why they're doing so well today. It's great. Pride. Pride is a difficult issue to self-diagnose because it comes in a lot of different forms. Uh, sometimes it's really overt and it's obvious. Other times it's really subtle. Sometimes it comes in an unexpected form. And because of its many faces, it's difficult for us to assess whether or not pride is an issue for me. And sometimes we have a, a skewed view of what pride really looks like. Because usually when we think of pride, when I said that word a moment ago and the face and the name came to mind of the person that you think struggles with pride, it's probably the more overt and obvious kind. Sort of the, the arrogant me monster. Do you guys know what a me monster is? Have you heard that phrase before? No, a lot of heads shaking up. Well, let me help you out. You can go ahead and check this out. This is what a me monster is. I'm actually kind of quiet off stage. A lot of people don't realize that. I was at a dinner party recently. Bunch of people that I don't know. One guy talking plenty for everybody. Me, myself, right, and then I, and then myself, right, me, me. I couldn't tell this one about I because I was talking about myself, and then me, 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 me. Beware the me monster. Why do people need to top other people? I've never understood it, and I see it all the time. Obviously, people get something out of it. At best, people wait for your lips to stop. Yeah, as soon as... Okay, yeah, you, me! You, me! You see the difference? You see, you see that? Now I do. What is it about the human condition people get something out of that? That's why I have a social fantasy. I wish I was one of the 12 astronauts who have been on our moon. They must love knowing they can beat anybody's story whenever they want. They can sit back quietly at a dinner party while some other person, some me monster, is doing his thing and let him go. Let him run with the line while you be quiet. Oh, really? <laughs> Let him have his moment. Yeah, I'm a big traveler. I have my business all. I got my own global enterprise. I got to check. And, you know, driving in the Autobahn because I keep a fleet of sports cars over in Zurich. You know, I got this Swiss account that I'm going to check. Mount Kilimanjaro expedition. Might have to cancel that. You know, runways in Aspen are a lot shorter the first time you go in there. You know, you know, you know the Pacific Rim Company. I'm going to try to take that over. And global enterprise. I walked on the moon. <laughs> well, you have the floor, moonwalker. <laughs> you know, you mentioned driving on the Autobahn. That reminded me. Once I was driving in the Sea of Tranquility. <laughs> in my lunar rover. And I, too, was worried about our speed till I remembered, wait, we're the only ones on the moon. There it is, all right? There's the me monster for those of you who have never heard that phrase before. Now, generally, that is, 
the idea we concoct in our brains when we think of pride, the arrogant me monster type. And I think that's because we have a very narrow-minded view of what pride can and cannot be. And so today, to help us all out, um, I have put all of the words that the Hebrew and the Greek use for pride and all of the stories that the Bible illustrates with pride and kind of thrown them in a blender and poured a smoothie out. And I'm going to give you a, a, a biblical definition for pride. It's very simple, but I think it'll help us wrap our head around the concept. Here's what pride means according to the word of God. Having a disproportionate view of oneself. A disproportionate view. And that could go either way on you. It could be disproportionately high, but it could also be disproportionately low. If you have a really lofty view of yourself, then you have a disproportionately high view of yourself, and thus you put everybody else below you. But the flip side of that is if you have a very poor view of yourself, you have a disproportionately low view of yourself, and you put everybody else above you. You self-depreciate. Now, that might seem odd that pride could be classified as self-depreciation or insecurity, but it is, in fact, a biblical concept because here's what happens when you put yourself down, when you put others above you and you look at that standard and think that you don't measure up. By doing so, you actually put your own opinion of yourself above God's opinion of you. God's opinion of you is that you are the head and not the tail, that you are above and not beneath, that you are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. These are the things he says about you through his word. And when you say, no, I'm not, I'm this, I'm ugly, I'm terrible, I'm a failure, I'm never going to amount to anything, then by saying those things, you put your own view of yourself above God's view of you, and your insecurity actually becomes pride in disguise. The Bible says in Isaiah, how prideful can you be? How can the created thing look at the creator and say, why did you make me this way? So often we think that insecurity is this lowest form of humility, but in fact, it's one of the greatest forms of pride. And so pride comes in many forms. Pride can, yes, be the arrogant me monster, but pride can also come in the form of vanity. People who look in the mirror and really like what they see. You ever see that person at like the department store while they're trying some clothes on? They got like the mirror face. They're like. <laughs> okay, I see you. Pride could come in the form of haughtiness. Uh, not to be confused with haughtiness. I like, hey, that girl's a haughty. She got some haughtiness. Not like that. Like haughtiness, which means that you put other people below you by means of their race or their socioeconomical status. And you're like, oh, that group of people, those people, I'm, I'm better than that, the superiority complex. Pride could come in the form of constantly needing to be right and never being willing to admit when you're wrong. Pride could come in, in the form of never being able to be questioned. Don't question, how dare you question me? You, you know who I am? Pride can come in the form of a lack of prayer. A prayer life is simply a life that understands its true dependency on Jesus. I can't do this thing without him. So every day I find myself in prayer and I call out to God who provides for me and who leads me and he guides me. A lack of prayer says I don't need God to intervene in my life. I don't need his assistance in this thing. I can live by myself. I can live by providing for myself. I can take care of me. That's pride. And yes, pride can come in the form of insecurity and self-depreciation. It takes on many forms. But let's not be deceived here today. Pride, while it might show up in a bunch of different ways in your life, regardless of how it does, it's a big deal to God. Pride is a massive issue. 
This is not, and I'm not here to classify sins because I don't think God does that, but pride is not like some baby little white lie that you throw out there, like, you know, your age or your weight on your dating profile, like 29, 120 pounds. Mm. When, you know? Like, <laughs> pride is, an, is, is a pretty major issue to God. Pride is listed among the seven sins in the Bible that God specifically states he hates. It says in, in Proverbs that God hates pride and arrogance. And I think that one of the reasons God hates this sin, this issue so much, is because pride is kind of like a trigger word for God, a trigger scenario for God. If you go all the way back, the book of um, Ezekiel, chapter 27 or 28, somewhere in there, you can read about the fall of Lucifer, the fall of Satan. Uh, uh, most of us, we often think about the devil as this, you know, constant enemy. He's been an enemy since the beginning of time uh, with God. That's actually not how it worked. Originally, Satan was an angel among angels. He was a leader among the angels. He was one of the most beautiful creations God ever made. The Bible says that he had like instruments woven into his body, wind instruments, so that when God walked by, literally worship began to emanate from his body. He had like a, like a gold-plated chest thing, and there were jewels and diamonds and all kinds of stuff inside of this chest plate. And when God walked by, the radiance, the glory of God would, would shine off of Satan. His whole job was to bring glory to God. But while he began to live through his days in heaven and look at himself, instead of realizing that he was created to give glory to God, glory to God he began to take glory for himself and realize like, yo, I'm kind of a big deal. I got, these, I got these instruments in me and I got these jewels and I'm wearing Balenciaga up here in heaven and like, I'm a big deal. And God's like, yo, I, I created you to give me glory, not to take it for yourself. And when Satan became prideful, that pride was the very thing that got him kicked out of heaven. Not just for a season, but for eternity. And so when humans operate with a spirit of pride, it's like hitting replay on one of heaven's darkest moments. It's like God being reminded all over again, I created you to give me glory, but you're taking it for yourself. Let me say it like this. It'll hurt. It's painful, but it's true. We are never more like Satan than when we operate with a spirit of pride. It's a big deal to God. Now, if it's such a big deal, we should be really good at taking a look at our lives and ensuring that we don't have any pride in our hearts. We should be very consistent about pursuing humility. If God hates it so much, like we, we need to be aware of our condition. So, so let me help you do some inventory this morning because I think pride has the ability to weave its way into a whole lot of areas in our life. Pride can weave its way into your workplace. This unhealthy need to be successful and be the best and make everybody else look worse than you. To talk terribly about your boss because your boss is an idiot and you could do his job better and to, to succeed. And often it's rooted in insecurity because people grew up in families that maybe had, didn't have much and they weren't very successful and they need to prove that I'm not like my family, I can be the first that's successful in my lineage. Or maybe it's because someone told them the whole time growing up, you're never gonna amount to anything and I'm gonna prove them wrong, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna succeed. That's a spirit of pride. Pride can manifest in your marriage. A, a spouse that refuses to ever be wrong or maybe a spouse that's incredibly insecure because they're not getting the affirmation that they so desperately need from their partner. 
People that post things on social media or people that you know, are looking for love in all the wrong places except for the love of their spouse because they so desperately want their spouse to look them in the eye and say, I'm proud of you. You're doing an amazing job. Thank you for taking care of our family. Thank you for whatever. And if they don't get it at home, they will find it somewhere else. Here, this is free for you today. If you are married and you're not good at affirming your spouse, you need to fix that right now because their pride might be your responsibility. It might be your fault. You need to engage and affirm. That is one of the primary jobs of the spouse. That's the take home for you for free. Pride can manifest itself in the way you parent your kids. If you are the parent that makes some bad disciplining decisions, but never has the ability to look your kids in the eye and say, I'm sorry, that was wrong. I'm not perfect either. If you're the parent that says, I'm always going to be right, my way or the highway, that's pride. Pride can make its way into your friendships where you just become the yes man or yes woman and you're so insecure because you're so desperately longing for affirmation and approval from people that you will do whatever they tell you to do and you will go wherever they tell you to go because you have such a low estimation of yourself. All of those fit into the category of pride. But, but let me give you one of the easiest ways to diagnose pride. And this is probably gonna hit more of us than we realize. If it becomes incredibly difficult for you to draw near to Jesus, you might have some pride in your life. If the reading of the word, the prayer life, the worship, you're doing everything right, but it just feels like there's this massive distance between you and God and you can't draw close to him, chances are you might have some pride in your heart that needs to be purged. Here's look at what scripture says in uh, Proverbs chapter three, James chapter four, and first Peter chapter five. It says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That word resists in the Greek, the root of it is the word anti. It means that God is literally against prideful people. He simply cannot get close to those who have pride in their hearts. It's like trying to take two magnets of the same polarity and getting them to, to connect to one another. It's impossible. No matter how hard you try, they just repel one another. And I know some people that that seems to be their journey with God. It's like, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. I'm chasing, I'm praying, I'm singing, I'm worshiping. I'm doing all I know how to do, but I just can't seem to connect with God. Well, there might be a root issue that needs to be addressed. God may not be able to draw near to you until we take responsibility for the pride in our hearts. So let me ask the incredibly obvious and confronting question. You're probably already asking it of yourself. Does that describe your life in any way? Your workplace, your marriage, your parenting, your friendships, your relationship with Jesus, do any of those scenarios feel hauntingly familiar? And if so, how do you deal with pride? How do you purge it from your heart and create humility in your life? Now, this is the part of the sermon where the pastor generally offers some spiritually obvious truth, right? Like, go memorize these scriptures, just go ahead and sing this song out, pray this prayer, and magically, humility. <laughs> Bad news today, um, that's not going to work. You can't read your way into humility. You can't sing your way into humility. You can't pray your way into humility. 
There is no humble prayer. In fact, I would advise that you do not pray for humility. That is probably not a prayer you want God to answer. If you prayed, God, humble me, he might actually take you up on that offer and it's probably not going to end very well for you. Just read through the Bible a little bit, you'll find some stories. Like ask a couple of the kings, ask Pharaoh, ask Nebuchadnezzar, ask Herod. It did not work out well for them when God had to humble them. If God has to humble you, it's because you didn't do your part in the beginning, because here's what you'll find. If you study the scripture from page to page, cover to cover, highlight, circle, lipstick, every single one of them that has to do with humility, here's what you'll find. The Bible commands us to humble ourselves. Humble yourself. Humility is an act of our will. It's one of the few things that God gives us the responsibility to accomplish. It's like, you have to deal with this one. You have to humble yourself. It's not even listed among the fruit of the spirit in the Bible. Meekness is, but meekness and humility are two completely different Greek words with two completely different applications. No, the Bible tells us over and over and over and over again, hey, if you've got a pride issue, you need to humble yourself. So, so how do you do that? Well, that is a journey that I have been on for a very long time. Don't laugh at that. Man, Jazzy, come on. I thought we, was, we were close. Oh, it was Kara. Everything I said about you, I take back. Seriously. I think, I think all of us have um, like, like root issues. All of us have certain sin patterns that we're predisposed to. The Bible calls it iniquity in the book of Psalms. It, it's a word that means like a bend or a twist. There's certain things that you just are naturally inclined to do. Some of us it's lust, others of it's greed, others it's, it's dishonesty, some it's gossip. We've all got our list of issues and I have a very long list of issues for sure. But I think right near the top of mine is the issue of pride. I've had to deal with pride for a very long time. And I don't know if it's just the nature of leadership or if it's the nature of standing on a stage and doing what I do for a living. Like, I think that this has been an area where I've had to intentionally over and over and over again, humble myself. And so from one recovering prideful person to another, uh, let me offer you a couple of thoughts just from my own experience, a couple of ways that you can truly humble yourself. Humble yourself. Uh, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. This will be an easy one to remember. If you want to pursue humility, develop a humble heart and purge pride, you need to drop the fork and grab a towel. Drop the fork and grab a towel. Say it with me. Drop the fork and grab a towel. I know that means nothing to you yet, so let me explain. Drop the fork. One of the greatest ways you can pursue humility is through fasting. And that's about the response I expected right there, yeah. <laughs> no one shouts down fasting. Amen! Woo! <laughs> you, you can tell the church like, Hey, we're going to go on a Bible reading campaign together. It's going to be amazing. Amen. We're going to have a worship night. We're going to get everybody together. We're going to worship. Amen. Come on, we're going to have a prayer meeting on Tuesday called Pursuit. Come on, let's go. Amen. We're going to call a corporate fast. Yo, is this like a cult or something? Like, <laughs> Preach it, Pastor. Fasting is one of the most incredible weapons we have access to as Christians. 
but it's also incredibly underutilized for the simple reason that it just sucks. It's painful. It's not fun. Fasting is not enjoyable, but it is a powerful tool. Uh, I will talk a little bit more about it at the beginning of the year. We're going to do a seven-day corporate fast and um, invite everybody to jump in on, on the team, and we'll teach a little bit more about what fasting produces in us spiritually. But for the sake of the sermon today, fasting produces humility. It truly does. Look at what the uh, King David says in, uh, in, in Psalm chapter 35 and in Psalm 69. He said, I humbled myself with fasting. What's the command? Humble yourself. I humbled myself with fasting. King David understood that when God brought him to a position of authority, that his mandate was to consistently humble himself, to remind himself that God brought him there and he didn't put himself there. And so I have to remind myself over and over again to humble myself so that I see myself clearly. I see myself the way God sees me. And that is a massive statement for a king to make. I humbled myself through fasting. Consider the gravity of that statement from King David. King David was a guy that found out at 16 years old that he was going to be king. For those of you who've raised teenagers, imagine your 16-year-old finding out that they're going to lead the nation. They're going to be the king. Chances are that does not naturally produce humility. What happens when a 16, we don't even have to wonder. Simba is our model, right? Like, oh, I just can't wait to be king. No one say do that. No one say go here. Like that's, thank you, okay. <laughs> that, that's what happens when you find out at 16 that you're gonna be a king. You tell everybody about it. And then he became the greatest warrior of his day when he slayed Goliath cut off his head. People wrote songs about how incredible David was. And then ultimately he became the king of the most powerful nation on the planet in its time. Like if anybody has a reason to be proud, to be prideful, it's King David. But from his position of authority, from the place that God elevated him to, he understood that it was his job to consistently humble himself. And how did he do that? Through fasting. I humbled myself through fasting. And here's what David understood, and here's what we need to understand about fasting. Fasting produces humility in a way that very few things can because fasting reminds us of our humanity. It reminds us of our frailty. You can be the CEO of the biggest organization in San Francisco, or you can be homeless on the streets. You take food away from someone for three days, and we are all reduced to the same pathetic, frail state. And we are reminded that it is ultimately God who holds this whole thing together. That at the end of the day, I am just a ball of flesh on this planet. And the only reason I have breath in my lungs and a heart that's working right now is because God is good enough to keep me alive. Something about fasting just reminds you of that. In fact, the very word for humility in the Greek is the word uh, tapin, which means of the ground or dirt. Humility, true humility is understanding that at the end of the day, I'm just dirt. Not like in a, you know, depreciating way, but at the beginning of time, God took some clay in his hand and he breathed into it and he created humanity. From the dirt we came and from the dirt we will return. And there's nothing like fasting that reminds you of the fact that my life is short. My days are numbered. 
If food were, were no longer an option to me tomorrow, it would be a very short period of time before I was standing face to face with Jesus. And that is a healthy, humbling reality. Fasting is something, and I don't say this to, to boast. If anything, I'm boasting in the fact that I got issues and I need to sort them out. Fasting is something that I have learned to do every single week of my life for probably the last 10 years of my life because I'm constantly in this place where I need to remind myself of my frailty. I remember 10 years ago, um, I had just been asked to take over a youth ministry and um, I was now preaching on a regular basis and the youth ministry was relatively large at the time and uh, it was growing and God was doing some great things and some weeks were amazing and other weeks weren't, but I found myself in this really unhealthy pattern. Every time Wednesday night got over, I would get into my car and I would begin to either take too much responsibility for what went well or too much responsibility for what didn't go so well. I start scrolling through Instagram and looking for the attaboys and finding my affirmation and what other people said about my sermons and our, our services. And I found myself looking for people after service that I knew were gonna tell me that it was great. And man, you're such a good this, or you did such a great that. And I'm in the car driving home one week after a particularly difficult Wednesday night. And I'm getting depressed as I normally would when things were difficult and just kind of like, man, this was, this was horrible and people aren't gonna come back. And I start praying. I'm like, God, what's the deal? Like this is, I'm tired of this emotional roller coaster. He said, okay, you ready to talk about it? You got some pride in your heart. You have, you have some issues. You're taking a little too much responsibility for things that go well. That's actually me that's doing that. And when things don't go so well, just remember, this is not your church. This is my church. These are not your people. These are my people. And I'm the one who's responsible for all this. So even when things are difficult, it's not your fault. Okay. And I felt the Holy Spirit prompt me the next day on Thursday morning to just fast and remind myself that at the end of the day, everything's being held together by him. Next week, things went incredibly well. What did I do on Thursday? The same thing. Like, that was actually a pretty good reminder that God's in control of this thing. And for the last 10 years, almost every single week, I found myself intentionally pushing back the plate, dropping the fork so that I can remind myself, hey, if things work well or things don't work so well, if the sermon was great or it was a C minus or worse, ultimately, this is Jesus's church. You're his people. I, you're not mine. I, I, this, no offense. <laughs> not like you're not my kid. Like, that's not my baby, you know, but like, this is his church. He builds his church. And my job is simply to just say yes to whatever he asks me to do. Fasting will purge pride from your life like nothing else. If it's an issue for you, just a suggestion. Maybe once a week, maybe one meal a week. Put down the fork and spend a little extra time with Jesus and see what that does for your humility. Number two, and I'll take the band, they can come up now to give the illusion that I'm done preaching. Grab a towel. Drop the fork, grab a towel. I think one of the most consistent ways to remind yourself that you are to be humble, that you are to see yourself in light of the way that God sees you is to grab a towel. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, most of us will be familiar with the Last Supper when Jesus is uh, sitting down with his disciples before he's handed over to be crucified. And um, the events of the Last Supper, you've seen them in the painting. They're amazing. Um, but in the middle of that dinner party, a pretty awkward conversation arises where Jesus' disciples start to debate who is the greatest one among them. 
<laughs> there goes the piano. And as they're debating, I just kind of imagine like one disciple saying to another disciple, like, though this is why I'm better than the rest of you guys. Like Andrew, Andrew's like, hey, you know, I, I told more people about Jesus than the rest of you jokers, so I'm the greatest. And Matthew, he, he's like, hey, I was a, a tax collector. I was making so much money, I was making bread. I left it all to come hang out with Jesus. I'm better than the rest of you guys. And one by one, they go around the table and talk about why they're better than the rest of the disciples. And it comes to Peter. And Peter's just waiting patiently, eating his food. And all of a sudden, I walked on the water from the moon thing. Anyway, I saw that joke going better in my head. Duly noted. So as they go around the table and they start talking about who's going to be the greatest, Jesus does something really odd for someone in his position. Uh, the Gospel of, of John records it like this. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him all authority over everything, and he come from God and would return to God. And so he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel he had around him. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again, sat down, and he asked, you understand what I was doing? You guys call me teacher, you call me Lord, and you're right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done for you. Jesus, God in human flesh, gets down on his knees and begins to wash the filthy feet of the very disciples he created. What a statement of humility. Washing feet was not the responsibility of the honored guest. It was the responsibility of the lowest slave in the household. The least of the least was given the responsibility to find his way around the dinner table and to wash the feet of the guests. But Jesus, the greatest among them, became the least so that he could display to all of the other disciples at the table, arguing about who's the greatest, hey, this is how you become great. This is what it's truly supposed to look like, to pick up a towel and to serve one another. Let me say it like this. If we're never more like Satan than when we operate with the spirit of pride, we are never more like Jesus than when we serve other people. Jesus had no business washing his disciples' feet, yet he gets down on his knees and he does something that seems beneath him in order to prove nothing is beneath me. I'm here to serve. That's what the Father's called me to do. And then he looks at everybody else and he says, hey, see what I just did there? That's what the kingdom is like. That's your job. You're not above anybody. We all take the humble position of a slave and we serve everybody else. And this is why I love our church so much, to be honest with you, because so many of us get this. We really do. This last week I mentioned we launched the food pantry. When we announced that we were gonna be launching one, 72 people signed up to serve hungry folks in the Sunset District. And those 72 people of them, 25 or so, showed up on, on Thursday and they showed up to set up tents and rain and unload food from the back of a truck and hand out carrots and onions and milk and eggs and groceries that people don't have access to. But you know what blessed me the most? 
when we're packing everything up and putting stuff away, we're getting into our cars and as people are driving away, I see Audis and Mercedes and Teslas, really expensive vehicles, which I just enjoy anyway. But this thought popped into my head. Here are a bunch of people that society says has arrived at a place of success. Society would say that the activities we just did are beneath them, but they have taken the humble position of a servant and said, handing out carrots and milk is not below me. I will serve this community. I will serve the under-resourced. I will pick up a towel and even if it seems beneath me, it is my pleasure and my honor to serve others. Every single week, a collection of people called the Dream Team, there's 179 of them on there right now, show up to this building. They set up signs and they transform a Masonic Center into church. Some of them hang out with babies and toddlers in our kids' church. And people hold signs out front and they smile and they wave at you when you come in. And they use batons in the parking lot to help people find a space to park. They set up food and donuts and coffee so that when people leave, we can have a time to hang out together. Every single week, you know a lot of those people are ranking executives and people of prominence in their workplace. Some of them are working six days a week just to try to make ends meet. Others are just going to school, trying to get their education. Yet they wake up early on a Sunday morning because serving is not beneath them. Because waving a sign is not beneath them. And they're like, if I can pick up a towel, and I can make a way for somebody who is far from Jesus to encounter him in this building, I'll wake up early, I'll wave a sign. It doesn't matter that I sit at the top of the pie chart in my organization, and I'll do whatever it takes for people to find life in Jesus. They serve. And serving produces humility. It's one of the greatest ways to have a humble heart. So let me ask you, is we land the plane this morning. What towel are you holding? What are you doing right now in your life that seems beneath you? Who are you serving on a consistent basis? Are you humbling your heart through service? Or are you just one of those disciples sitting around the table arguing about why you're greater than everybody else, waiting for someone else to wash your feet? Please, if pride is an issue for you, don't stay in that place. Because listen, Jesus did not just pick up a towel. Jesus carried a cross and he died a criminal's death that you and I deserved. And he embarked on the greatest journey of humility so that you and I could be exalted to a place of honor so that we could be called sons and daughters of the most high God. So when pride begins to well up in your heart and you start thinking that you're something and that you matter and other people are not on your level, we need to come to this beautiful place where we remind ourselves, I am what I am by the grace of God and he must increase and I must decrease. Let me look around my world and say, who can I serve today? Who can I serve today? Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.